It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and said, soon turned out, had a heart of glass. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. So, uh, you know, I, I, I pitched this idea for this episode um, and uh, it's all about organs on chips and uh, you guys really uh, went nuts with the whole um, research and it was only about five hours into it that we suddenly realized that it's 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 not about snack food no it is not about uh, uh, putting like sheep organs on french fries and what they would call that in England yeah. oh well I'm, I'm a really big fan actually of that entire genre of kind of you know the right. awful and the and, exactly. and, and chips are delicious. Yeah, so. you're, you're talking awful as an O F F A L, yes. right? Not not A W F U L. Mm. No. Uh, yeah, Various as it turns out, organs. we were we were really They're really rich. We were really interested in in covering that and the future of it. But uh, as it turns out, the the what organs on chips actually are is pretty darn fascinating, and it's all about transforming how clinical tests would be carried out. But in order for us to talk about transforming. We kind of have to lay some groundwork, right? We need to talk about how clinical 
trials happen? How how do how does the medical profession evaluate and regulate things like drugs, for example? Yeah, because you can't just make a drug and put it in a bottle and then go sell it to anybody, can you? Uh, well, you can, but legally you'd be culpable for that. Yeah, and... anything that you claim has a pharmacological effect, you would then be probably brought under the uh, the attention of the Food and Drug Administration. Here in the United States the or US, yeah. whatever other regulatory body you have in whatever other country. Sure. What if I call it a natural remedy? See, now then you get a little more uh, leeway in some countries, but that's that's a different conversation. Okay, no, let, let's look at actual mainstream pharmaceuticals. Let's okay. say that I am a researcher and I've come up with a new compound that I think will help cure some disease. Okay. What happens before I can actually give that to people to help them? How, how, what are all the processes I have to go to to find out whether or not it works, whether or not it's safe to get all the government approvals what happens luckily we have lauren here who is our our medical guru so lauren uh, do you feel comfortable tackling some of this uh yeah sure totally uh first of all it's going to depend on what country you're in because regulations are going to be different under any any different government obviously uh, but the the preclinical and clinical trial procedures are similar around the world we're going to talk specifically about the u.s ones right now so let us talk about those two phases, the, the, the preclinical and the clinical. Uh, during the preclinical, first, Joe, if you have made a compound, that's, uh, that's heads above many other people in the research industry right this very moment. Uh, it, it takes a lot of doing to actually create a compound that you think is going to solve a particular problem. You know, it, you might be trying to inhibit or amplify a particular enzyme that does something or isn't doing something correctly. And so once once you've got a bunch of computer modeling and in vitro, that's that's lab dish testing done, then you can move forward to the next part. OK, so I've done initial testing. I've, I've got a compound I've settled on. What do I need to do next? Uh, next, you need to test it in living animals. And I know that th that this is a very sensitive and squeamish topic for a lot of people. Sure. And I absolutely understand that. I don't think that anyone, medical researchers included, are twisting their mustaches going like, yes, we are going to hurt these rats today. Uh, at least I hope not. That would be I, I'm very fond of rats personally, but it, it's incredibly important. And we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, but uh, let us suffice it to say at the current moment that different animals are used for their similarities to, to different human systems. For example, pigs' cardiovascular systems are surprisingly similar to humans. Mm. Uh, the rats are the go-to for lots of drug testing, especially at these early stages that we're talking about. Right. So that's probably because lots of mammals or pretty much all mammals share a lot of things in common, even though they don't necessarily share everything. Uh, yeah, we also don't share many, many, many things. And that's part of why this whole organ on a chip discussion has been rearing up. But uh, the things that you're looking for with animal testing include like how much of a compound will be absorbed by the body or how the body will break it down into into the metabolites or the toxicity of the compound and its metabolites at levels that are likely to be used for the intended purpose of the drug or how quickly the compound and its metabolites will be excreted from the body. All of these being, of course, very important to figuring out how a drug works. Right. So in other words, if I take a drug and it turns out that only a tiny percentage of whatever that substance is actually gets absorbed by my body, then you would 
you, you could draw the conclusion that that wasn't a very efficient use of that particular uh, 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 dose of drug. You could say it's not that the drug is necessarily ineffective. It may be that you need to make up more of that that dose with other inactive elements to make up whatever that particular delivery system is. Oh, sure. Or maybe you need to tweak the compound itself, or maybe you need to change the delivery method. Maybe you were injecting it, but it needs to be taken orally. There's yeah. all kinds of, uh, I mean, numerous multitudes of variables that can go into any stage of this process and its testing and its safety. Uh, and, and it's so complicated that traditionally computer modeling has never been good enough to substitute for actual physical animal testing. I mean, just because our bodies are so ridiculously complex and our systems are tied to each other in, in ways that we really don't understand yet, right. which sounds ridiculous being that we live in the incredible future. But we've said many times on this show that the human body is kind of one of those science things that we just don't, ha don't have worked out yet. Well, yeah, as it turns out that if you want to learn a lot about the human body, there's some ethical issues that you have to look into. Like you can't just take a person and then say, all right, we're going to take this one one person apart and see what makes a human body tick. That's there are huge ethical problems with that. If you don't recognize that, uh, why don't you go listen to stuff they don't want you to know? Great, oh. well, a great podcast. <laughs> the show for sociopaths. That is oh, not that's terrible. We love, show we love hosted Josh. by sociopaths. Oh, oh snap. If no. Josh and Chuck ever listened to our show, they I would said be stuff they don't want oh, you to know. Did you? So, yes, yeah, oh, so that would crap. be Ben and Matt. Oh, no, they're totally sociopaths. Yeah, there Never you go. <laughs> no, we, we love them too. <laughs> And they love us. So at, at any rate, at this stage, um, the, the compound can go through a lot of these little tweaks that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and if all goes well, the company developing the drug would submit a investigational new drug application or IND to the FDA, which is, of course, the Food and Drug Administration. Um, the, the application will include the chemical and manufacturing data, the animal test results featuring a whole bunch of different safety margins and whole body effects of the compound, um, and then the, the reasons for proceeding to a human trial, the plans for protecting the human volunteers, and uh, the, the overall testing strategy is going to be laid out. It's, it's not... It's longer than a book report, y'all. Right. Because, I mean, again, this is why animals are so important in this phase, right? Because, uh, like you were saying, the human body being so complex, if you're taking a treatment that's targeting a specific part, like let's say it's for a disease that's found in the liver, mm -hmm. uh, that does not necessarily mean it won't affect other systems in uh, the body. Yeah, the drug is not going to magnetically go to the liver and just hang out there. Right. It's going to get into other systems and might have unannounced side effects, right. unannounced uh, unpredictable side effects. And and that's true in animal bodies, at least as much as it is in humans. And so right. uh, all of this is very sticky. But once, once they've... Uh, been approved on their IND, they can move on to clinical trials, which is the official human element in all of this. So this occurs in three different phases, phases one, two, and three, uh, which take approximately one, two, and three years to complete respectively, although they can take very much longer than that, depending. During phase one, uh, 20 to 100 volunteers are given very low doses of the compound. The volunteers might be healthy or, in the case of very severe diseases, uh, actual patients. Mm -hmm. And the doses are then gradually increased to test the effects and the safety of the drug. Okay. What about phase two? 
um, about two thirds of drugs tested will proceed on to phase two, um, during which 100 to 300 patients are given the compound to help determine the most effective dose and delivery method and to continue assessing the compound's effects and safety at, at these street levels. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't have an exact number on this one, but a lot of drugs drop out of the trial phase right here and have to kind of go back to the drawing board to be uh, retested and reevaluated. Gotcha. Um, now, to mitigate potential harm, these first two phases are conducted with the smallest number of volunteers possible in order to gain statistically significant results. But during phase three, the testing is opened up to thousands of patients across many different populations, which um, uh, population is medical jargon for a group of people with uh, vaguely common denominators in terms of uh, like age, health or, or age sure. or anything like that. And this is where final dosage and safety data are, are sussed out. And some 10% of drugs that have made it this far will fail to be deemed safe. All right. But for the drugs that actually make it through those three phases, they just go out into store shelves, right? Just uh, plop right there. Not at all. Oh, no, okay. No, we are we are we are certainly not done yet. All of this preclinical and clinical data is wrapped up into a new drug application or NDA mm. in the industry and submitted back to the FDA for independent review, which can take up to an entire additional year. Um, during which they might ask for more data or corrections or even stipulate a phase four of testing. And in the end of this entire process, only one out of every 5,000 to 10,000 compounds that entered preclinical testing to begin with will ever be approved by the FDA to be marketed to the public. Um, And even after that approval, the manufacturer has to check in quarterly with the FDA for the next three years. And prescribing physicians have the responsibility of reporting adverse reactions. And and the the company itself might choose to continue clinical trials to assess like long-term effects Mm -hmm. and continue tweaking dosage recommendations and safety and stuff like that. Or might have side effects that just happen to be really useful for curing other problems. Ah, yes. Like a like a medicine that might be used for uh, cardiovascular purposes that perhaps addresses a completely different issue for people who are looking for a particular solution to a particular problem. <laughs> I, I think I know what you're talking about. Vi- yeah. Viagra, I believe, is the That, is that would the be the one I was specifically yes. dancing around. So um, <laughs> now that we've covered that, uh, what about some of the issues that we've got this this incredibly large, uh, encompassing process that is meant to make sure that whatever comes out at the end of it is the most beneficial, right? That that is going to not cause harm, ideally, and will actually be efficacious for what it's intended to do. Uh, or that at least are, the the harm outweighs or the benefits outweigh the harm. Exactly. Rather. So so what what are some of the problems with this process? I mean, clearly we want something that's very, uh, uh, you know, meticulous so that we don't cause large amounts of harm. But what are some of the drawbacks here? Well, for one thing, it sounds like it takes a really long time. Uh, yeah, I think eight to 12 years is the average. So meanwhile, wow. you have people suffering from whatever 
the the drug was intended yeah. to address. Mm-hmm. I mean, assuming that it's a good drug that does work. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and it can be sped up um, in certain circumstances, like, for example, during the uh, the, the AIDS outbreak in the 1980s, mm. uh, some some drugs were pushed through very, very quickly. And and that is a thing that can happen in that kind of case. So in extreme circumstances. Right. Sure. Well, but, it also sounds to me like this process might might have a bit of a price tag to it. Uh, yep. According to the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America, as of the year 2000, it cost more than $500 million to bring the average drug to market. Whew. And that was 14 years ago. So as of today, it's probably a lowball. Um, of, of course, not all of that is um, specifically wrapped up in clinical trial. Right. Which is kind of the part that we're dancing around with the entire topic of this episode and wherein organs on chips are going to come back to us. Uh, that that might take a measly um, two million dollars at, at the kind of low end of estimates. Now, keep, the, you might wonder about, you know, the pharmaceutical industry. Everyone talks about it being a multi-billion dollar industry. But as we've set up this this process, it it requires you to have a huge amount of uh of cash just to be able to yeah yeah. Yeah. you can't you can't just jump into the market willy-nilly simply because you do have to meet these very strict standards in order to to move forward another problem i would see with this whole process is the concept of animal testing obviously which can be a problem for multiple reasons i mean number one there is just the the ethical concern i mean that it's a hard question to weigh that like you know Obviously, we want to be able to create drugs that can save human lives, but you know, how many animals do you have to kill to do that, and what's what's the scale there? But beyond that, uh, there is the question of how much can we necessarily learn from animal testing? Sure. Oh, Obviously, right, we can right. learn some things. Yeah. I mean, it's not saying that that's worthless. But... Oh, of course, but you know, at a certain point when you're when you move from animal testing into human testing, and you realize that that things that you had previously assumed based on your animal tests are completely incorrect in a human, it's it's heartbreaking for everyone involved. Right. Well, yeah. There's it's a, it's the a waste of time rats. and money and life. And it's and... also an increase in risk. Yeah. Oh, sure. There's, there's yeah. a chance that something that had no toxicity in your animal models may be toxic in humans um, It's it, or vice versa. I mean, there are things that we humans can consume that are fine. And if an animal consumed it, it might not be able to survive or it could end up suffering at least some form of poisoning. So it's uh, the animal models are not always predictive for what will happen when you transfer that same sort of treatment over to a human. Also keep in mind, we're talking specifically about testing drugs, but other types of chemicals are also tested on animals because of similar reasons, things like cosmetics or just chemicals that humans would come into contact with. And it and so anyone who's making said chemical for some product mm-hmm. has to be able to demonstrate what are the the parameters? The safety parameters for its use. Yeah. Sure. So all of that requires animal testing. And obviously, uh, you know, depending upon your personal feelings toward uh, animal testing, this may be very disturbing to you. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, you know, I think that we can all agree that um, if you're testing cancer treatments, then, I, you know, I'm really sorry, Fluffy, but... It's for the best. It's for the best for all of us. Right. But if you're testing mascara, then I, I get yeah. where that upsets people a little bit more. Yes, clearly. So one of the potential uh, solutions for this this ethical issue is this concept of an organ on a chip. And uh, really, this would 
mostly concerned those preclinical phases Lauren talked about, the ones that are animal testing in particular. Potentially, this particular type of technology could help reduce or even eliminate the need for animal testing if it proves to be an effective enough platform. Okay, so what is an organ on a chip? All right, so... It looks kind of like a little plastic chip, about the size of a USB flash drive, a little thumb drive. Um, not a not a full drive, but you know, just one of those little things you can put on your keychain. It's about that same size. So it's a it's got these hollow microfluidic channels that are lined with actual human cells, like living human tissue. Exactly. And I mean, the, it's obviously not connected to a human, but but it the is tissue is alive. Yeah, the the actual the actual cells are viable cells. They aren't just you know just just desiccated cells. They actually do live. And the chip replicates the functions of a particular organ. And the organ is all dependent upon what you've lined the, the these microfluidic channels with. So, for example, a lung on a chip would include a membrane that on one side is lined with lung cells. And on the other side of the membrane, the flip side, you would have human blood cells lining it. And you could have uh, air essentially circulating across the lung cells and blood or some sort of blood simulated fluid uh, moving across the the other cells on the other side of the membrane and the membrane itself can actually expand and contract thus mimicking the physiological function of a lung okay but we already test drugs i believe in the preclinical phase on uh like cultures like lab dishes full of cells don't we yes so what kind of difference would the organ on a chip make well a culture of living cells obviously it's really important to use that and to see what the effects are but the culture of cells doesn't have the physiological function of the organ it comes from right it's just a collection of living cells that represent that tissue but it's not performing uh, functions of an organ. Okay, so we don't get to see them in action. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like if you were to take a gear out of a clock and just look at the gear. It's not doing anything. Uh, yeah, and the, the metabolic processes that any of our organs go through are going to change, uh, physically change the way that the cells are functioning. So this is yes. a very important piece of the puzzle. So depending upon what organ you're talking about, the chip is going to perform in a specific way, right? It's not like a lung on a chip is going to behave the same way as a bone marrow on a chip, but... And not unless you've got something very strange going on with your bone marrow. Yeah, that. <laughs> then you have some other issues. So if we go to that lung on a chip example, the chip has this airflow across the lung cells and the blood-like fluid across the other cells on the other side. And this is what allows it to simulate the performance of a lung. Uh, these particular types of chips are being developed by a couple of different groups. Uh, the one that I specifically was really interested in was the Wies Institute, which is a biological research institute that's part of Harvard University. Uh, they've created 10 different organs on a chip models, including liver, gut, kidney and bone marrow. Uh, and uh, they're looking to partner with pharmaceutical companies, uh, to, with biologists, with chemists, to test these out to make sure that they are, in fact, uh, good analogs for actual human organs. Um, and in late July of 2014, the department that was specifically working on organs on a chip within the Wies Institute uh, has 
spun off a new private company in partnership with a startup called Emulate Incorporated, which has a worldwide license to commercialize this technology platform and try and move it forward to the next phase, which would involve using these in very, very uh, controlled tests. To, you know, you probably start actually with stuff that's already been thoroughly tested mm-hmm. to make sure that the organ on a chip behaves in the way you would. In a predictable manner. Exactly. Right. So that you can prove that the technology works. Um, there's another company called Nortis, uh, N-O-R-T-I-S, that's also working on organ on a chip platforms. They have a goal of launching a product in 2015. They, uh, the company itself launched back in 2012. They spun off from a research group at the University of Washington. Uh, they developed a chip that actually mimics the blood-brain barrier. Oh, wow, cool. Which is pretty awesome. That's one of those things in medicine that uh, fascinates and confuses me every time I, I hear about it. It's one of those uh, uh, difficult issues is how do you get things that uh, either do not breach the blood-brain barrier or do breach the blood-brain barrier. So with the the startup, I think we're going to see some partnerships between uh, Emulate Incorporated and other companies to really test these out and check to make sure that the these actually do work as an analog. Um, and it's interesting. They've even come up with a a version where they can hook up the different organs on a chip together in a system to simulate an entire human body. Oh, so essentially you have all these different chips operating as the different organs. Uh, and that way you can ch- check whole body effects oh, that's of drugs. Creepy and awesome. Yeah. So if you, again, if you have that drug to treat the liver and you want to make sure it's not going to put too much stress on some other organ, you could introduce it and it, this will behave as if it were a, a, human in miniature in a way. I mean, we're talking about teeny tiny elements that are replicating the basic functions of the the organs that they represent. That's kind of hard to believe. Yeah. It's, it's really, really mind blowing to think that such a tiny sample of cells could be representative of an entire organ and its functions. But mm-hmm. it is a, that's that's at least the, the pitch. Right? Oh, sure, sure. I guess and we'll find out. Yeah. 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 And, you know, while, while we're we mentioned cost earlier, and right now this sounds like it would not be cheaper, probably, than... The, the goal is that by using just very tiny amounts of cells and having a streamlined production method, you could actually produce a whole bunch of these with just a tiny amount of actual cultured material, right? Huh. Uh-huh. So you yeah. wouldn't have to uh, have a whole lot of, of, of raw material to start with. We're talking about just tiny amounts of cells yeah, in, in yeah, the yeah. long once, run. Once we can mass manufacture livers on a chip, then it's yeah. just livers for days. Right. And then you just think, you know, you don't have to worry about procuring animals. You don't have to oh, worry yeah, about yeah. Uh, all the other issues that would come along with that. So this would, at, at least in theory, like I said, uh, reduce or perhaps even eliminate animal testing if, in fact, they worked as perfect analogs for humans, then you could say, well, let's test it on this. And if it works here, then we can start looking at this replacing the animal testing portion of preclinical trials. Yeah. Or, you know, even hopefully we've talked a lot about the dangers to animals in these trials, but the dangers to the human volunteers, especially at the very start of the clinical phase of of trials is also huge. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You might be able to find out that something that you thought was going to be perfectly acceptable uh, might be toxic. And in which case you would know immediately, like, well, this is a this is a failure. We're going to have to completely rethink this uh, and then not put any actual person in danger. You've just all you've done is destroyed some chips that can easily be replaced, whereas people irreplaceable. 
Okay, so this sounds like crazy science fiction, but it is happening right now in various places around the world. What is the crazier science fiction version of this? All right. let's, let's blow this out into the future. My favorite version of this, I mean, it's beyond the whole idea of, of using this for drugs or, or cosmetics or chemicals. I would love a world where we can test chemicals and cosmetics on this kind of platform and never have to worry about subjecting animals to that. Uh, that would be fantastic. But beyond that, imagine a world where you go in to let's say that you you have a serious disease and you need to have it have uh, treatment for that disease. Let's say you go in and you have uh, you get some the doctors get some samples of your various the cells and your various organs and create a specific body on a chip analog to you specific to you, like your body chemistry and then test out the various uh, potential treatments on that analog before giving it to you, and then they know which ones are potentially the most efficacious, the ones that are most guaranteed to get you better. We're talking about customized health care to the patient. Personalized medicine. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Same, same sort of level that we talk about when we talk about nanotechnology being used to uh, diagnose and treat patients so that... The care is so specifically applied that it uh, it reduces side effects as much as is possible. Oh, yeah. yeah, that would be. Uh, It'd be amazing. Yeah. Like I, I have so many friends who have had various incredibly uh, difficult treatments for various ailments throughout their lives. And to think of something like this potentially being able to reduce that level of stress and anxiety a patient feels, as well as oh, just sure. the, the hardship of going through treatment. Oh, yeah. It would be amazing. And even, even on really basic medication levels, uh, you know, people are all so different. And even with all of those hundreds or, or thousands of volunteers that they get to test out any given drug, you have no idea how it's going to interact with your specific physiology. That's true. And so... Uh, that's oh, th th that, that's, that's that the, really is a beautiful. Feature. That's the world of st statistics, right? Statistics tells you what the likelihood is that you will have any given reaction to any given treatment. But statistics, that's just that's a percentage. When you get down to an individual basis, things can go sometimes outside those parameters. It it can happen if there's a if there's a statistical percentage that it's possible, it will happen, at least with some people. So this is a way of being able to spot those outliers early. Or maybe you notice that perhaps because of your body chemistry, you might have an allergic reaction to something that for most people in your condition would be a completely valid treatment. That would be good to know before getting it done. <laughs> yes. So, yes, very much so. Uh, so really promising work, fascinating stuff. And uh, there are a lot of different uh, articles about it. Most of them just kind of relate back to the individual websites of the companies that are, are doing this or the division of Vice Institute that's doing this. But uh, it's I'm, I'm really curious to see how this goes along. I'm hopeful that it will pan out and be a viable testing procedure for uh, for pharmaceuticals, chemicals, cosmetics, that kind of thing down the line. Because if it is, then that's going to be good news for everyone involved. And uh, maybe it will mean that we'll be able to have more effective drugs on the market, maybe a little faster. Not It won't necessarily speed up everything, because clearly there will still be the need for full clinical trials. It's not like this is going to replace the entire process. But it might be able to fix part of it, or at least streamline part of it. So uh, anything else you guys want to say about organs on a chip besides the fact that uh, 
we're still disappointed it's not a snack food. I'm uh, not disappointed anymore. No, you're not? No, because now, now you got this hopeful view of the future, right? Yeah. It, I, I'm not disappointed, but I am still a little bit hungry. Okay. Well, that's probably a good cue for us to wrap things up then. So we're going to uh, end up concluding. But you guys, if you have any suggestions for future topics of forward thinking, maybe there's some specific element of science or technology, or you're just wondering, like, what's it going to be like? Like, what's my commute going to be like in 20 years? Is it going to be easier or will there be way too many people everywhere and I'll never get to where I need to go? If you live in Atlanta, I bet it's going to be the second one. Let us know what you want us to talk about. Drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Google+. Our handle at all three is FWThinking, and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit ForwardThinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.